flip open to the, to the front of it. Um, if it's your Bible, then, uh, then, then you'll maybe flip past uh, the presentation page and the marriage page and the birth page. Um, if, it's, if it's the Pew Bible, it may just open up on the table of contents. And uh, so open up to the table of contents right there. Um, we're going we're gonna to start a four-week series, um, something I'd prepared and uh, I, I'd actually planned on sharing with you a number of weeks ago, but unbelief took a, took a tremendous amount of time. And uh, so in, my, in the schedule in my mind, uh, we should have we been, been done long ago, but God has another schedule that he's leading us by. Um, in the Old Testament, we've got the first five books, the, the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then, and then the historical books beginning with Joshua. Um, moving all the way to the end of, of Esther, some poems, uh, wisdom writings, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then we enter into the balance of the Old Testament where you have uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have these last books, the minor prophets. Um, just give you a little secret here. The major prophets are not major prophets, because they do any better than the minor prophets. Uh, the minor prophets, their books are tiny. Uh, the major prophets, they are very big. You can read Isaiah in one sitting, but it will probably take you like six to eight hours. You can read Jonah in one sitting, and it will take you about seven or eight minutes if you read straight on through. Um, but if you, if you will flip over now in the Old Testament to the book of Jonah, um, if you'll flip over to the book of Jonah. Are you guys all in Jonah? Are you there? It's on the sign. You guys know where we're going. You guys are sharp. I'm like expecting all this flipping and all this. Yeah, all right. Um, we're going to be... You stole my thunder there, folks. Um, I stole my thunder. I put it on the sign. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, from, from the book of Jonah. Um, we may do the whole thing in, in one, one setting, um, one of these weeks, but this morning we're just going to read chapter 1, and, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll hear from God's Word. Let's, um, let's read Jonah chapter 1. The Scripture says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your servants, Lord, throughout history, from the moment that this word came to Jonah till now, the moment when it has been read in this place, Lord, we thank you that you have shepherded your word and that your servants, your stewards have protected it so that we might hear it. Lord, we thank you for your gracious character. And Father, we pray this morning as we look at your gracious character and as we see perhaps some ways in which we fall short of that character. Father, we pray for three things. We pray, one, that we would be burdened with the weight of our sin. And Lord, that we would repent of it. Father, we pray, second, that we would see your glory shining through. That though our character does not measure up to yours, that yours remains undiminished and is completely holy and worthy of praise. And third, Lord, we pray that we would see within your grace, within your mercy and your love, that you make a way for each and every sinner to come to you in repentance and to receive your grace and be restored, to be made righteous, be made clean in your presence. Father, we thank you that because of the blood of Jesus that we can stand in your presence and say that we are clean and holy and righteous and free from spot or blemish. Father, we pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning who does not know you, that as we do what we do each and every week, and we look upon our sin, and we look upon your grace, Father, I pray that you would point out the need to be saved by you, to be washed by you, and to be transformed by you. Lord, and may we all go and live according to your will and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I would like to um, share very simply uh, the message of the first chapter of this book. And I think you could write over the whole book how not to be a prophet. Uh, we all desire to live the best life possible. We desire, if we know God and if we know of God, we desire to live in a way that pleases Him and to live for His glory. And we believe that if we have been called by God's grace, that if we have responded rightly to what God says in His Word, we've received Christ as our sacrifice, which takes away our sin, we believe that we are called then to minister that Word to others. We're to if we're parents, to minister that to our children. If you're a husband or a wife, there is an ongoing task of sharing the word with our spouse. There's a need to share this in our workplace. There's a need to share it with strangers. And Jonah, 
I think very helpfully, and as we'll see in coming weeks, very comically, shows exactly not how to do that. So five steps how not to be a prophet, beginning with the most obvious. Step number one, if you want to not be a prophet in everything that you do, oppose God. It's possible. This is the, one, of the, one of the big ideas that we should walk away from Jonah with. It is possible, theoretically, to live like you know God and not live at harmony with him. It's possible, theoretically, to live like you know God and not live in harmony with him. God's stated purpose as he begins this book, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We don't know how. We don't know if he heard a voice, if he saw a vision. If we, we, don't, we don't know. The book doesn't say. And so often when God sends words to prophets, it doesn't say. It just says that it came. It doesn't say how. The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, maybe he heard it, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Preach repentance to Nineveh. Why? For their evil has come up before me. God has become aware in a greater way of the evil of Assyria, and he is ready to judge this great nation. More on Assyria. We'll talk about them extensively in week three. For now, we just know that there's a city, that it's evil, that they need a prophet to come to them and say, repent. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Go Call them to repent. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that fun? Isn't it fun to say Tarshish? Now you may have heard it as I read through the book that Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish. I said it three times. Tarshish. The author He's pointing out very clearly that God sent Jonah to the east, to the northeast, to head to Assyria. But Jonah didn't head off to the northeast. He fled to the west as far as he could possibly go. He picked the farthest port away, and he went in the exact opposite direction that the Lord was sending him. He ran away from the presence of the Lord. We do this as people, don't we? I mean, let's, let's not play games. Let's be honest about who we are. Whether we call ourselves Christians or we're just what we would consider moral people, so often we know the right thing to do. And we run from it. We know what God would have us do. And we say, I, I don't want to. We know that we wouldn't like something, we wouldn't like someone to treat us in a particular way, and yet we find an excuse, don't we? To treat others that way. It's not okay for everyone to do this because the world would be chaos if everybody did this. But for me, in this particular time, in this particular place, I, I am the exception. And so I choose to disobey. We see God's moral will for us. He says things like, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit sexual immorality, don't murder, even if it's just with your tongue and we see God's will for us either as just inconvenient or we see it as restraining and evil. How many times do we find in Scripture that we're called not to complain? And yet, we consider complaint a small sin. We're told over and over not to be proud, and we find ourselves speaking about ourselves in a way that, that makes us appear 
more. It makes us appear greater. We want praise. We crave kind words from other people. And so we just travel around living in a a non-humble way towards others. We're called to treat others more highly than ourselves. We look around at the way other people behave toward us and we take all these tiny offenses as sins against our dignity and we live in a proud, exalted way. We see God's moral will for us as evil or inconvenient. Or we could go another route and see something that God calls evil or something that he calls good as good and evil. Many people in our culture, people professing to be Christians, live lives of persistent sexual impurity. And they say things like, I'm sure God's going to forgive me. That's the gospel, isn't it? That God forgives all sin. God calls us to live lives that are characterized by pure speech. Whatever we do, whatever we say, It should give grace to those that hear. And yet, so many times, we speak in a way that is not glorifying to God. And we say, he'll forgive me. I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? That God washes away our sins, that Jesus makes us clean. It's very possible, but only theoretically, To live as if we know God and yet not live in harmony with him. Romans 1.21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How is it with you this morning? Jonah, in a very obvious and in a very big way, defied a direct command from the Lord. But perhaps with you here this morning, there is some area of your life in which God is calling you. You could feel the finger of the Holy Spirit on your soul saying, this is what I would have you give up. This is the way I would have you change. This is a sin that I've been convicting you of and convincing you of, and you know it, you're just unwilling. You're resistant. You're not, you're not willing to pay the price and to sell out to me as Lord. You just, you're refusing to give that up. And you're fleeing, running in the opposite direction from the Lord. Perhaps it's the direction of your whole life. Although you know God, you're refusing to honor him as God in your life. Romans 1.21 teaches that this only leads one place, and that's futility in thinking, and that our foolish hearts will be darkened. A heart and mind that is set on heading the opposite way from the Lord may act like it knows God, but it is living out of harmony with him. Now there's good news on that point, and I'll I'll come back to that later, but I want to share a warning here, and I think it's a warning that we see in the text, that there is a tremendous danger in non-repentance in our lives, okay? So step number one, if we want to not be prophets, is to oppose God. Step number two is to consistently deny the nature of God's character, consistently deny the nature of God's character. And here's, here's the reality underneath that. It is not possible to have a real relationship with God and expect him to leave us alone. It's not possible to have a real relationship with God and expect us, expect him, rather, to leave us alone. Jonas fleeing off to Tarshish. She's heading the exact opposite direction that God 
sent him. Many of us, we have this soap on a rope approach to our sin and our salvation. We're like, ah, I'll just sin and, 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 and later I'll just come back to Jesus and wash it all off and I'll be clean again, clean in time to go to heaven. Please don't treat grace that way. And please don't treat your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you in this way, where you say, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but don't correct me or it's over and our fellowship will be broken. Because you're, you're, you're cutting them off. Expect that if you've got an area of your life where you're saying, Lord, you can have my whole life except this, or if you feel the conviction of God upon your life and you know that he's calling you to live in a particular way, you're just saying, no, I don't want that. Expect that he is not going to leave you alone. Because that's not his character. Look at verse 4. Jonah got in the boat, headed the opposite direction. But verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There's a lot of hurling in this book, by the way. You'll notice this. It shows up over and over and over again. If you grew up in the 80s and you know what hurling means, this doesn't mean that. It means like throwing. Yeah, it's not that kind of hurling. Um, God hurls a storm upon the sea. Now, back in this day and age, the sea was the great wild raw area. Man had developed all kinds of techniques and means of, of controlling agriculture. Irrigation was, was prominent at this time, and so people weren't constantly starving to death. They were growing crops and harvesting and building granaries and storing things. Um, they were fishing on the edge of the sea with nets and boats. But the wild sea, the out there, this was the domain of the gods, the wild gods because the sea was untamable. And I, in prepping, was thinking, well, that was back then, right? But if you're like me, I know I've said this, I think, four weeks in a row, and you watch Deadliest Catch. It's the last reference to Deadliest Catch for a long time. The ocean is wild. The ocean is ferocious. And it's there that we find that all the safety and all the security that we have on land is just an illusion. Out there, we learn that God is the one who chooses whether we make it or not, whether we survive or not. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Very interesting. You may have a note in, in the bottom of your Bible, in the, in the footnotes, depending on what kind of Bible you have, it actually, in the Hebrew, it reads this way. The ship thought that it was going to break up. This is the, the more on that a little bit, a little bit later. We'll talk about that. Um, what is God's character like? Is he capricious? He calls to us and says, go, do this hard thing, prophesy to these evil people, live in this unhappy way that I'm calling you to, or I will punish you? No. Exodus 34, 6 says this. this. God is talking to Moses, and God says about himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is God's character here? It is one of blessing and one of grace. He desires to give good things to his children. He desires to show mercy to them and to love them and to give them what they need to survive. He loves them. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression and he forgives sins. But verse 7 of Exodus 34, which I just read, finishes this way. But he will no means, but he will by no means clear the guilty. God is gracious and loving and merciful and kind. But he calls us to live within his will. If we live in a way that supports his grace and which works 
toward his ends in our lives, then we will find his ways with us are kind and generous and loving. But if we oppose him, he will oppose us. And this is exactly what we see happening here. Jonah has headed the other direction, and now the ship is going to break. The mariners are crying. They're, they're pulling on ropes. They're raising and lowering sails. They're running all over. They're, they're, they're bailing water. They're doing all kinds of things, and they're crying out to their gods, multiple different gods. They're probably crying out to Baal. They're praying prayers to Ashtaroth, perhaps to Chemosh, different gods. They're crying out on their gods. It all actually says also that they are hurling cargo overboard, and Jonah is asleep. Perhaps he's seasick, overwhelmed by being tossed around, and he is headed down with the cargo, and he is asleep. Well, the captain comes and wakes him up and screams at him, What are you doing? You lazy bum, get up and pray. Now, I want you to see the saddest note in the book is right here. He wakes him up and he says, Arise and call out to your God. Wake up. Cry out to your God. And then he says this, Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. These men had been praying, crying out to their gods all their lives. And now they were in the midst of this tempest, this fierce storm, and they were crying out and praying, and it was not doing any good. And so in a desperate move, they wake up the last man who's still sleeping on the boat, and they say, maybe your God can save us. We've served our gods. We've called to our gods, and they've, they're not helping us at all. Maybe your God will help us. If you're here this morning and you're praying for something to change in your life and you're praying to no effect, nothing's happening, nothing's different in your life, maybe you're praying to a God who's not there. We have to pray to the God who is. And that means that we need to accept him for who he is for who he reveals himself to be in the pages of this book. Remaking God in any image is idolatry. Our culture has got no room for a God who would judge or oppose humanity. The God I believe in, you've heard this, is a God of love. He doesn't judge people. He doesn't condemn. Well, that may be. But that God is an image that we've created in our own likeness. We need to throw that idol away and worship the untamable God of the Bible who exists in all his glory and exists in the way that he is and not in the way that we would define him. And here's good news. In reading this story, I very much, I see the story of my own life. I felt very young, at, a, at a very young age, I don't even know if I understood the gospel. My wife says that she believes I did. Um, she didn't know me then, um, but I knew me, and, and I'm not so convinced. It was, it was 1989, very clearly. It was, in, it was in South America, Central America, in Honduras, sitting on a wall uh, on, on a building that I was working on and, and, and as part of a missions trip, and, and watching the sun come up. I was doing my devotions, and I, I felt very, very clearly God's call on my life to surrender and to serve him in, in ministry. And I thought, that's not what I want for my life. I want to be a cartoonist. And I've got ideas, and I'm going to be bigger than Disney. And that's, that's who I wanted to be. And I spent the next seven years of my life doing that. And let me tell you what. The story of my life is very much that God hunted me down and he would not relent and he let me have no joy and no happiness until the night when I said, you are Lord, seven years later, and I will serve you in the way that you desire. And I felt very much leading up to that, that, that was the ruin of my life. 
that to say yes to him would mean the end of every dream and that everything would be horrible. And he ruined it. I'm exactly who I did not want to be. But I love his plan for me because it has brought me more joy than I could possibly imagine. It's different. It's not what I wanted, but it's better because that is his nature. God calls to us and says, do this, follow me, live the way that I've called. And we say no, and he opposes us until we submit. Jonah said that he ran from the presence of the Lord. The scriptures teach that we cannot run from the presence of God. God follows him. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where shall I go to flee from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's an Old Testament way of saying hell. If I make my bed in hell, you're there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness will hide me and the light about me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. If you are here this morning and you feel the hand of God upon your life and you know that he is judging you, he is convicting you, he is correcting you, know these two things. One, he will not let up. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get bored. He's not going to forget that you're there. You cannot run from him. That's the first point. The second point is this. His plan for you, his desire for your life, is much better than anything you could conceive of for yourself. And submission may seem like it is the worst thing possible. But you will look back on it as the greatest moment when you finally say, Lord, you are in control. And you'll look back. I mean, this is years ago now, and I think I wasted those years of my life. They could have been used for something, but in my own stupidity, I ran from God. And I missed out on years of his mercy and his grace. Step number three, how how not to be a prophet. Live in such a way that you have no respect to the consequences of your actions. Live in such a way that you have no respect as to the consequence of your actions. Know this. It is not possible, it is probable that our winful, willful sins will hurt others and ourselves. The sailors have now called Jonah, they have woken him up, they've brought him to the deck, and they say to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. The storm's not going away, we're all praying, let's figure this out. And so they cast lots, they probably either have a cup full of stones, or they've got some, some, some long and short pieces of, uh, of straw. I think it's more likely that they had stones or, or animal bones. And basically they have, they have a number of similar ones and then they've got one odd man. And so they shake up the cup, they hand it around, everybody pulls out a stone, and whoever comes up with the odd stone is the one who possesses the answer. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they turn to him and they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. We are all going to die. You have the answer. Tell us. Who are you? What's your job? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? Evil had come upon them. Now think about Jonah's life. God had called him, wanted to send him to Assyria to preach repentance and judgment on them that they might repent of their sins or God would judge them. Now Jonah finds himself heading the exact opposite direction on a boat with a bunch of people who are about to die. Why? Because he is there. And for no other reason. Jonah was supposed to have been an instrument of love and mercy. And here, 
stuck in his willful rebellion, he was going to be the cause of their destruction. Willful, stubborn repentance has no place in the life of a Christian. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, if you're not here, then I, I can't help you. If you're here this morning and you're, you've got something in your life that you're just like, I'm not going to give this to God. I'm going to continue along this behavior. God is going to pursue you until you repent. And it is going to damage and hurt those around you. It's going to. It's going to. God is going to keep his finger there on your life until you relent. You ever wonder why annoying stuff happens in your life? Right? You know, we, 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 we think things like, God, I am so impatient, Lord. I, I just, I, I don't display your character. I want to be more like you. You know, we sing songs like, Jesus, come and spend my life. You know, calling God to glorify himself through, through our lives. And then we get online in the supermarket and we're like, you know, oh, last night, the lady, three people in front of me, she was like, I'll give you this five, I'll give you this, no, 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 let me give you this $10 bill. No, 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 no. You know, she's like going through all her money and I'm in the back. I'm like, I just need to buy a bag of flour. <laughs> you know, get out of my way. And my son, Max, is helping me. He's seven and he's like, look, that line's short. That line's short. Go over there. Go over there. And I'm like, no, 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 no. No. I'm going to be patient because that's how I glorify God. I glorify God in my patience. And so here I am. I'm in line. I'm all proud of myself. Yes, I am a patient Christian, right? And then what happens? My phone rings. I'm handing the lady the flower and the phone rings and my wife says, I need brown sugar. Why does this stuff... Am I impatient because my life is imperfect? Or is my life imperfect because I am impatient? Now, you've got your junk and I've got mine. This is, these are the things that I struggle with. I'm not going to share some of the other things that I struggle with. But, but, but you know, I think, you, you know what you struggle with. God does stuff in your life to purify you of that. And if you resist... If you fight back against that and you say, no, I'm going to hold out, I'm going to oppose that because I want this, you're going to hurt those around you. It's going to happen. Willful sin hurts those around us. All of these men were about to die because of Jonah's willful defiance. And there's another image, another effect of his willful sin is that his willful sin says something about his relationship with God. Let me just encourage you to repent of whatever it is that you're holding on to. If you're holding on to something, just give it over to him. Let me move on to step number four. If you want to be, if you don't want to be a prophet, live in a way that does not honor God. I'm going to put some, some skin on this second part of, of his willful defiance here. It's shameful that often those who claim to know God best live in a way that communicates that they know him little, if at all. Those who often claim to know God best live in a way that communicates that they know him little, if at all. We're going to talk more about Jonah's ludicrous behavior in week four. We'll, we'll really get the, the full, we'll look at the whole book and, and look at his behavior there in, in, in three weeks. But I want to just point out one aspect of his character right now. Here he is in the middle of the ocean. He is willfully defiant. He is disobeying his God. He is refusing to obey his God's commands. And they say to him, 
Who are you? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Tell us why this is happening. And look at what he says to them. I am a Hebrew. Okay, he introduces himself as a representative of all his people. Think, I'm a Christian, is what we might be saying. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what are they going to think about the Hebrews? And what are they going to think about his God? Does he fear his God? Does he honor his God who made the land and the sea? I think they seem to understand the implications of what he's doing more than he does. The men who were there, verse 10 says, they were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He's like, oh, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a prophet. I, I speak for God. You know, I, I get, deliver people messages. That's my job. That's my function. I, you know, I'm, I serve God. I fear him, the God who made the heaven and the earth. And he told me to go to this city. And so I went the exact opposite way. And they're like, are you crazy? Why are you on our boat with us? Does he really fear God? Does he really fear the Lord? Now, think about this. In the ways in which we are willfully defiant, let's talk about perhaps impure speech or or other areas of Scripture like coarse jesting, which we might call telling dirty jokes, or, you know, speaking in a complaining tone. Think about this. What kind of smell or aroma are we giving off on a weekly basis in our workplace? Are those people going to think, That person is a Christian, and they fear God, the one who made the earth and the sea. Or are they going to think, they're no holier than I am. Their God's no better than my God. Their religion, it's not doing anything for them. It's just their thing. Or could we instead live in a way that actually fears the Lord? If Jonah really feared God, then he'd be on his way to Nineveh. And everyone who met him would know that he feared God. Who are you? I'm I'm a Hebrew. Don't you live all the way down there? Yeah, yeah. But I'm headed up here. Why? Well, God's sending me to Nineveh. Nineveh? Why are you going there? There's There's no Jews there. You belong down there. Well, God sent me with a message. Oh, really? Oh, cool. What's the message? Well, I'm going up there to tell them they're, to repent because they're evil. Really? You're crazy. They're going to kill you. I fear God. And they would say, there's a man who honors his God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of of the Lord is hatred of evil. I honor God, and so if I find evil things in me, I hate them and I throw them away. And if 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 I see evil things in society, I don't laugh about them and affirm them. I figure out ways to correct them or to oppose them. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. But if I act that way, if I live holy, I won't get promotions. I worked for a company for a while, folks, that if I did not lie, I would not advance. And so I sat in my lowly cubicle and watched my friends get bigger and better jobs. And then I quit and went to grad school. So um, Proverbs 15, 16 says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. If Jonah truly feared the Lord, then he'd be running in the opposite direction. What kind of testimony are you giving off in your workplace, in your home, to your friends, by the way that you live? Now, the men want deliverance because they're in a bind, okay? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. The storm is getting worse. 
So the, he says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will, be, will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And so the men are like, what do we have to do? He says, chuck me in the water and the storm will go away. And they're like, um, yeah, not going to do that. Because your God is the God who made the sea. And we're not exactly about ready to pitch one of his followers over. Better that you'd never got on our boat. Then we wouldn't be in the midst of all this trouble. So look at what they do in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The storm's getting worse and worse. So what do they do? They're in the midst of this dilemma. So they pray. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Look at what's happening. Even with his sin, they are now calling on the true God and asking the true God for mercy for what he has brought about. We don't, we're trying to row to shore. We're trying to save this guy's life. You're not letting us. We're going to chuck him overboard. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Have you noticed that the noble characters are the ones who are supposed to be farthest from God? Maybe one of the reasons that Christians have such a hard time believing that those who are not Christians will not be saved is that they see such little difference between themselves and those around them who don't know Christ. Are you committed to living a holy life that honors God in the way that he desires to be honored? Are you living life with a morality that is consistent with God's? Or are you making it up as you go along? Jonah's behavior indicates to us that we ought to do the opposite of that. And we ought to live for the Lord in the way that he's called us to. Let me wrap up one last point and we'll draw to a close here. If you want to be an ineffective prophet. If you want to not be a prophet, then live for your own glory. But know this, that whether we honor God or oppose him, we will all bring glory to the Lord. We're going to talk about the fish more next week. Let me just point this out. Everything in this story honors God. God hurls a storm or hurls wind on the sea, and there's a storm. God uh, sends a storm on the sea, and the ship is going to break itself up. The mariners honor God in the way that they behave. God appoints a fish, and when Jonah is pitched over the edge, the fish is there to catch him. Everything honors God except the child of God, and that is not the way it should be. Jonah becomes a piece of black velvet here that displays the diamonds in the story when it should have been the reverse. But it's not all bad, okay? Let's not, let's not paint him as totally evil because he does have one redeeming moment when he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. This prophet from Nazareth echoes another prophet from Nazareth who says something similar but means, means much more. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is God's way of dealing with sin, his own self-sacrificial love. These men rode hard to save Jonah, to get him to dry land, to free him from his death. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came to be sin, not to flee from his own death, but to take it upon himself so that we might be free from our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jonah was hurled to save others from his sin. But Jesus laid down his life to save others from their sin, though he was sinless. We're called to live in a particular way as people, but we're all separated from God by our sinfulness. The good news is this. It's not what we do that saves us. It's who we trust in. And the root of our salvation doesn't come from our behavior. That's the fruit that grows out of the way that we have been saved. And if we put our trust and faith in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, all of our sins, all of our failures will be wiped away. We're going to see this in coming weeks as Jonah serves and makes a difference on God's behalf. He is used as God's tool, not because he's perfect, but because he's obedient. And if we're obedient, we receive the grace of God, then God will use us as well. Well, I'm just going to close, call the band up. I want to encourage you, though, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I have sin. It's, it's on me. It, it definitely separates me from God. I've willfully sinned against him. There is mercy and grace at the cross. And God will purify you from any sin because he is merciful and kind and gracious to thousands. And if we just come to him in repentance, he will purify us and free us from all of our sins. Will you pray with me as we close? Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy toward us. Lord, I thank you that you have shown us in the life of this man exactly how not to live. But you've shown us instead your great mercy and kindness. You've shown us those who do live the way that they are called. Father, we pray that no one will ever be able to hang a banner over our life and say, this is a Jonah. But instead, Father, when we see your mercy and your grace, and we see conviction of sin, Father, may we repent of it, knowing that you are gracious and kind and merciful and loving, and you restore us to your good graces. We thank you that you purify us from any sin in Christ. We thank you that we can stand before you free from sin because of what he's done for us. I pray if there's anyone here who's doubtful about their condition before you, Father, I pray that they would trust in your gracious character and that they would seek someone out and pray with them. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in such a way that others would come to know you, come to desire fellowship with you, come to lift you up and honor you as God. We thank you. We love you. We pray your blessings on us, Lord. We thank you that you give them to us freely in Jesus. Amen.